Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another excellent episode of the Excellence Cartel. Today, we're joined by my good friend, our uh, three-time guest now, Stephen Pressfield, to talk about his memoir, The Government Cheese, or Government Cheese, should I say, which him and I were chatting before we went uh, live, and I think we're going to have some really good questions. But as first, you know, we've taken a few weeks off. The three of us uh, have been really busy nailing out projects i'm trying to hit my book deadline jeff's got some stuff going on jason's got stuff going on so we're gonna do a real quick how our last seven days have been and then get into the questions with mr mr stephen pressfield so jeff sue how's your last seven days been man uh it's been really busy uh productive uh in general it's just sort of echoes like the the success of the past year uh, another great year in business um i've been really focusing on my mentorship program um, developing community culture, all that, getting all the coaches sharing, liking each other's posts and just supporting each other. Uh, so that's been great. Um, other than that, I mean, it snowed here first snowfall, uh, the winter here in Massachusetts. Um, I'm a little concerned with, with mice in the garage with the, uh, <laughs> with, with the car being in the garage. So I'm, I'm winterizing and protecting. Uh, Are you doing all that? I've never done that. So, you really, you really think you get mice in your that nice garage yours? Oh, I absolutely do get mice. I've I've seen mice turds like around the dumbbells. Uh, oh, they, wow. they get in there. Yeah, they get in there. <laughs> I haven't seen um, it in Kentucky. I haven't seen it. But I think it's because last year I had old garage doors, so they were able to get in through the sides. There were some gaps, but I had new doors replaced and new new seals and everything, so they shouldn't get in. But you never know. It's it's cold, and they they need some yeah. place for them to to live. So. Other than that, watch them tailpipes. Gotta watch them Exactly. Well, you're like a single female. Why don't you just get a cat and let nature do nature <laughs> shit and just yeah, leave it in right. the garage and feed it? That's a good you know what? idea. You know, I could get a cat and just make it a garage cat. It's like exactly. not allowed in the house. It just lives in the garage. <laughs> but your garage get, is warm. Your garage it, is warm, right? Because the, the cat would probably get pissed off and like claw the Porsche though, like destroy the paint. Out of like just like <laughs> I don't know. I bet I bet two weeks in that damn thing would be on your couch sitting right next to you at night, like doing whatever you do. <laughs> Steven had a companion named Mo, the cat yeah. that that, that yeah. was with him in his book. So maybe you need a Mo in your yeah, life, yeah, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> um Jason, how's your last seven days been? Uh let's see. Um uh, had some kids stuff this weekend. Um Aiden's playing at a pretty high level these days. Colleges are looking at him, so he's in this club that travels all over but we got to have games like 10 minutes from the house it was so beautiful um <laughs> and uh he's been just playing really good they weren't starting him at first and he, and he worked his way in and we were having a conversation when we were training together last week and i was like man i know you're probably getting a little nervous it's probably affecting your game he's like dad it's not affecting me at all that i'm not playing a lot i know what i can do and literally like a couple days later he's starting so that was cool and then maddox has taekwondo belt to uh he's like a black belt now but it's like in training he had to pass this to be like solidified as a black belt he got through his form he got through the sparring he broke one of his boards and the other one he couldn't get it's a pretty hard kick uh, he's only eight so that was you know <laughs> it was cool but he was upset which was you know i night it was good that he cares you know so yeah uh, i told him that's okay um so i think that was a good lesson for him um business wise i've been really busy getting signups um mentorship like jeff and uh, the HRT clinic is actually killing it. We're on track now to do about 120 this month, which will be another 15 up from last month. Um, we've had some meetings and good conversations. And um, 
we're moving it down the line. So uh, nothing but good stuff, I guess. Just busy, man. Just busy. And I don't think I'll be able to keep at the pace forever, but for right now, that's what I'm doing. Sweet deal, man. Dude, my last seven days have been good. Business has been good. Um, meeting a deadline for my book. It uh, is officially February 1st is my deadline. Right. I have to have everything turned in. Um, I actually was laughing because um, I was reading Turning Pro. I read it every year this morning. And um, the part where Stephen was talking about his book and he had to take like, what, 200 pages out of it or something like that. The editor wrote you, there's some gold in here. You just need to find it. And that was kind of what they gave me. So I've taken out like 25,000 words. Like, I mean, I've really like took your word, your advice to heart. You know, you can't fix everything in one draft. So I've been smoking through it and smoking through it and smoking through it. Is that to remove things or to make what you're saying more succinct for the reader to grasp it? More succinct because you tend to repeat a lot and you don't realize you do it uh, when you're writing. At least that's been my experience and I'm an amateur writer. So maybe Steven could comment more on that. But for me, there was stuff I was like, Ooh, I kind of already said that. Oh, I kind of maybe said that this part doesn't make sense. Take it out. You know, that's tedious as hell. It is. The editing is nowhere near as fun as writing it. I can definitely have people that. that do that for, for, for you or they do, but you know, I think, you know, my thought is I wanted it to be a representation of my work um, yeah. and give them the best possible version I could give them before they hacked it up. Steven, um, do you still edit all your stuff like Jeff's doing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, wow. I think yeah. Sometimes you farm stuff like that out and then it, it's it's like it's written by somebody else, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you don't like it when you look at it. I know? see. It's definitely been a lesson in humility. Um, you uh, really do ask yourself like, like you can laugh about it and be like, oh, I know I was trying to say there, but that doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> and you quickly like delete it and move on. But uh, besides that, man, business is good. I'm looking forward to the new year. We started hiring coaches for in-person with Relentless at the gym. Uh, the gym's exploding. Uh, in-person training is just taking a big boom right now. I think a lot of people after COVID are just lonely and looking to kind of just start meeting people and get healthy. I, I don't know if you guys have kind of seen that, but uh, that w- that's what I'm seeing down here in Nashville, especially. Yeah, it makes sense. But I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm all online, so I'm not real sure. But uh, with your culture and the way you got things set up, I, I could see yeah. that. Um, Steven, how's your last seven days been? I know, but uh, I figured I'd give you a chance to touch on it real quick. Well, I've been, uh, I've been down with COVID, but other than that, it, mm. it's been fine. The one thing, you know, this will, uh, for what you're doing, Jeff, with your writing, uh, I just have to be relentless with myself and keep working, you know, mm-hmm. even if I can only work for an hour or something, it makes all the difference in the world, in my attitude and my frame of mind when I'm done, you know, if I, if I slough off and don't do it, then I just feel sicker and worse and, you know, no good, you know, whereas if I, and I, I know from the past that sometimes some of the best work that you do happens when you're all screwed up, you know, physically, otherwise, you know, you're sick. or mm-hmm. something. And so that's basically, I've just been sort of toughing it out, you know, looking forward to Christmas and, uh, you know, taking, you know, then taking a few days off. Absolutely. So I have a question for you. Um, before we kick this off, when you are feeling down or you're, or you're feeling sick or anything in between, do you just say like, hey, no matter what, I'm going to do something today? Like, it's just got to be something to be able to say you beat resistance because you took so many years beating resistance before you finally beat resistance yeah. that now it's just no matter what, like I'm fucking doing this and not going to lose type attitude. 
Yeah, that is, that's my attitude. Exactly. You know, even if you, I find if I can only do a little, you know, an hour or something like that, it, it makes all a difference, you know, mm -hmm. um, it just, uh, the muse doesn't seem to give you a day off. You know, you just, it's, <laughs> it's just like the gym, right? Yep. You got to do something, you know, otherwise you got to pay the rent. You feel bad, you know? Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Um, I have a question. So before we kick this off, you had given uh, me an advanced copy of your memoir, Government Cheese, um, which I passed on to the guys and they read. So we have some questions for you about that. But why that name? Because like I'm reading it. And so my interpretation of this, like we were talking before, and I'll be curious what the three guy, what the other two guys think as well, was this was like almost turning pro three or, or turning pro part two. It was like it tied up all the loose ends from the war of art to turning pro, it really gave a lot of your background of what got you to the stage to even play the game. Like do you, that, that's what I really took away from your memoir. I looked at it. I was like, Holy shit. This guy got sand rubbed in his face for like decades, <laughs> like literally balls kicked in his throat. Left, right. The fact that, you know, you had a conversation with Steven Seagal is like Steven Seagal doesn't look good in the desert. And you're like, that's the dumbest fucking thing ever. And then you were like, Nope, Steven Seagal doesn't look good in the desert. And just settled on it. I was just reading all these, like, you know, these things that you had written. And I was like, but why did he pick government cheese? Like, that was the one I wanted to know. Like, why is that? Is that going to be the we official title? Hear anything from Jason and Jeff on that subject? Yeah, no, I'm curious what they think. What did you guys think of that since you've read his other, wor his other works? Jason, I'll go with you first. In terms of the name or in terms mm -hmm. of? What did you think of the name? And then what did you think of, yeah. the, of the work? I, I wasn't sure exactly what it meant. Like to me, government cheese kind of seems like, like a grunt worker or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know what, if that's just what comes to my mind. I'm sorry to put you uh, on I'm the I'm probably spot way completely okay. off. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was a big fan of Turning Pro and I'll be honest, I'm halfway through this one. Um, if I was speed reading it, I, I, I wasn't taking everything in. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so I do think there is some some definitely familiarity between between the two. Jeff Sue, what about you, sir? Um, well, I googled it, and uh, I think it was uh, like, um, like a war ration type of thing. It's like uh, like a like a welfare type of food, welfare handout during World uh, War II. Yeah, and, and so I think the book is probably some. I mean, like I skimmed it too. I didn't honestly, I didn't have the time to read the entire thing at word for word, right? Um, so it's, it's probably, you know, having something to do with, uh, you know, societal. Well, let me, let me answer it then and save everybody embarrassment here. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, this is sort of in the days before food stamps, you're delivering any, trucks with it, right? Any kind of voucher system, mm -hmm. to help you know, people that were, you know, uh, were hungry, the government, state governments and the federal government used to literally give away food. You know, and a big part of it was uh, cheese. You would get cheese in like 25 pound blocks or um, powdered milk, uh, canned peaches, <clears throat> um, dried pinto beans, black eyed peas, that kind of stuff. And uh, and uh, when I was driving trucks in North Carolina in the 70s, one of the loads that I regularly delivered was surplus food to churches in these yeah. little tiny towns on the coast. And, uh, you know, you would get there at like five in the morning with a full trailer load, you know, tractor trailer load of food and back it in. And people would come, churchgoers would come all morning long and get 
food, you know, to, to go right off the back of the truck. And uh, it, to me, when I later became a writer, I felt like the analogy of writing to me was giving away food. You know, I felt like my job as a writer is to deliver a load. You know, I'm, I didn't make the load. I didn't buy the load, but I'm bringing it to people. And uh -huh. hopefully, and the thing about when you, that particular load of surplus food for people who are really, who are really struggling is they really needed it. You know, you were really doing good for somebody. It wasn't like bringing in a load of air conditioners or a load of TVs or something like that, that nobody really needs. You know, this was food on people's tables. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of how, uh, how I felt. That's what government cheese is. It's to me, it's what you deliver as a writer to the readers, you know, and if it really works, it's sustenance, you know, people take it in and it means something to them. Sure. So anyway, that's, that's what government cheese means in the, in this title of this book. Yeah. Now I thought that that was touching in the, cause your book is, you talk a lot about the truck driving stuff. You actually wrote a novel about it. Yeah, um, never got you know, published. But never got published. That was one of the shit cam ones, right? I think yeah, you were right, talking yeah. about. Um, but I want to kick this off with, so we're just coming off November, which is men's health month. <clears throat> and especially a lot of it's men's mental health. And, you know, men are killing themselves more and more um, every year. That number is climbing, uh, especially among men over 40. I saw that that number for is really starting to move the needle upwards. Like basically well, once you get I past 40, yeah, now a lot of them, especially like, 50 and 60 year olds more and more they just kind of get to a point like it's almost like futile and they're they're doing i was reading some very interesting stuff on because my gym raised some money for creativevets.org uh -huh. um and that was really cool to do and i got some extra information from them about stuff but i wanted to kind of break this open in government cheese you kind of talk about your failures um but the one i wanted to get into is first what about the failure of your marriage how did that really motivate you? Because the three of us here have been through our hardships with women, with failed marriages. I know myself and Jason, Jeff Sue's been lucky. He's been able to be a stag. But for the most part, how did that really impact you? And like, what was going through your mind then? Like when you had this failed marriage, how did you possibly recover that? Because I know as a man, I wanted to throw my head out in the back woods and hope for something to fucking kill me. You know what I mean? So I wanted yeah. to kind of get your thoughts on that. Oh, that's a great, that's a, a great question. question, Jeff. I mean, for me, uh, I'll just might as well be totally honest here. I mean, it was sort of everything in terms of uh, motivating me for years, for like 30 years, because I had, what happened was I had tried to write a, my first novel at age like 23, 24, and my wife had really supported me, Was couldn't have been kinder, more generous, more behind me. And, and, um, and then when I got to the finish line on that novel, I just blew it up. I had no, I choked. I totally, you know, screwed everything up and I screwed the marriage up. I kind of acted out in, you know, such ways that my wife just finally got totally disgusted with me. So the, the bottom line of it was I felt at like age 24, like I was a total failure as a, as a man, as a husband, as a, as a, you know, I felt like an idiot for ever even having tried to write a book. It's like, who was I to do this? I had no concept of what it involved or how hard it was, or did I have anything to contribute? 
So, and I felt really ashamed of myself in front of my wife, you know, and uh, there's a part of, of the book at the beginning that I, I, I know you remember, Chip, where I, I got fired for stealing a can of grapefruit juice from mm -hmm. this job that I had. And I just couldn't even go home to face my wife to even show her, tell her anything. And I just was ready to just, I just was leaving town to go work in the oil fields in, you know, in Louisiana, which is like sort of the bottom of the barrel. And uh, so it, it was, I felt like I had ruined her life, you know, that mm -hmm. she and I, she had married me hoping that we would be happy, that we would have children, that we would grow old together, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I had totally fucked everything up so mm -hmm. that not only was I ruining my own life, but I was ruining hers. So I was just ashamed forever. And that was a big motivation to me for wanting to finally write. I had to sort of, the only way out of this for me was in my mind anyway, was to prove that I wasn't a bum and a loser. And that was to sort of, you know, get something published, you know, figure out how to do this fucking shit, you know? And uh, that only took, you know, 30 years. So it wasn't that bad. <laughs> do you think that... Um... Had you perhaps not fucked off or done the things that made her loathe you that you would have been able to put it together? Or did you have to burn everything to ash personally ah, in another, order for you to turn pro? Oh, that is a great question, Jeff. You know, and I don't know if you can ever really know what your own mind is doing to you, but I do think I did have to burn everything down. It was sort of like, like God was saying to me, if you really want to be a writer, you got to pay every, you know, pay the full price. You're not going to get it easy one, you know, so, so that, yeah, I think you're right. I think I, it, I did have to, as painful as it was for everybody, it had to be done. When you were in the middle of it, <clears throat> did you feel like you were still in the wrong or did you feel like most of the things she was doing was causing the problems and you were in the right. Because I, I asked that because, you know, I've come through a marriage and, you know, you look at things and you kind of, when you're in the middle of it, you kind of feel like, man, um, they're just being unreasonable, this, that. And then you get out and a couple of years later, you're like, Ooh, like you get flashbacks of things that you did. And at the time didn't seem that big of a deal, but you're like, man, I can see that from their, their point of view. Like I wasn't all in, or I did this and I did that. And uh, those things can kind of keep you up at night. Or were you like already just kind of like ashamed and you knew that you were screwing up? Um, yeah, that's another great question. I felt like I was completely in the wrong and I still feel like I was completely in the wrong. And I really felt like I, I was just trying to redeem myself somehow. Yeah, there was no way I could justify anything I did and say it was right. Have, I was have you ever got to say wrong. sorry? Hmm? Have you ever got to say sorry? Uh, oh yeah, okay. uh huh. Many times. Yeah. Gotcha. So my ex-wife and I are now are now good friends after all this okay. time. Cool. But, um, right. but it was it was a sad situation. I, I, Jeff, I have a question, but if you're still kind of going in a direction, that's fine. no. I mean, the only thing I was going to ask him was how much does he do you think, Stephen, from what you've seen in life, the men you've met over life, the men you've worked with, how? hard do you think it is for men to deal with failure overall like do you think that's like our achilles heel and what really kind of holds you know the crabs in the bucket mentality uh from a lot of us kind of maybe getting over that threshold is that failure and once we're clipped 
we're forever afraid of of getting you know burned by the sun again yeah that's a um uh you know i think i think about my dad's generation you know my dad came out of the world war ii generation and, and he had been in the depression and all that kind of thing and his ideal of of success as a man was to get a job that was going to uh stay for your whole life like if you could go to work mm -hmm. for general motors or whatever it was you know and uh and that you would be loyal to whatever this company was and they would be loyal to you and you would raise a family you would be the single breadwinner etc cetera, etc cetera. and that world is like completely gone right yeah and now now we all like you guys are entrepreneurs you know and you're sort of the captain of your own ship right there's nobody that's coming to rescue you if things go wrong right and you have to be mentors to to people that you're bringing up under you you have to be blood brothers to your peers that are you know you're working in conjunction with and uh but when it when uh, that two o'clock in the morning moment comes you you know you're on your own basically you've really got to have it together right you have to have real mental toughness and i think that that's what american men are struggling with now i think that you know not like i've a student i'm a student of this at all but certainly that's that's what i've been struggling with forever and uh it's a different concept of what manhood is um and and i think that's that's the issue that's that's killing people these days men anyway I really like that answer. Thank you for that. Jason, go ahead and chime yours in. Then, Jeff, I'll let you go from there. What I was going to ask, uh, Stephen, I, I forget that you went to a really, when I read it in the book, uh, it would, it struck me as a very good college. Where did you go? I went to Duke. Okay. So, yeah, he went to good college. Very good college, right? <laughs> so, so don't take Although, offense. I didn't learn a fucking thing. Okay. <laughs> but I hope you don't take offense to this, but I think our listeners would be curious. Why truck driving? I mean, you could have got any corporate job you wanted and then worked your book on the side. Did you have to have that freedom to to write or was there some other reason? No, I mean, after I had tried to, you know, I, I did have a sort of a, a job in advertising in New York. I remember a reading that. Job, mm -hmm. yep. Which I quit to try to write a book. Mm -hmm. And by the time like two years had gone by and I had blown that book up and blown my marriage up, I was in such a mental state I can remember that I could not get another white collar job. Got it. When I walked in the door, people just could smell it on me, you know? <laughs> and, and I sort of, I say like, I kind of fell out of the bottom of the middle class and, and to the state, wow. but I had no skills. You know, it wasn't like I was a mm -hmm. carpenter or a mechanic or anything. So the jobs that I wound up doing, like in the oil fields or in a mental hospital, hang on a second. were the kind of jobs that you didn't need any skill. All you had to have was a pulse. And I wanted to get beyond that. And that was, so I sort of, I went to a truck driving school to kind of acquire what, you know, see if I could get a job. And my, but my goal then, I had completely given up on writing at that point. I was just trying to survive. And, and in fact, my hopes were really that I could be a truck driver forever, that I could, mm. you know, just have a blue collar job that I could do that I could handle that, that kind of thing. But that didn't work out because um, 
my fate was to be a writer. I was going to have yeah, to do that right. one way or another. Right. So yeah, it wasn't like I chose it in any way. I was like a pinball bouncing around from one thing to another. And so were they was, sensing a lack of confidence when you'd come into these next uh, white collar uh, jobs to interview? Is that, is that what was yeah, keeping you? Exactly. They could just sort of tell this kid is fucked up, you know? Got it. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. yeah. can you guys relate to that? Have you had moments like that or periods <laughs> of your life? Yeah, I think when I first opened up Iron House, a lot of people thought I was that fuck up because I was destined by everybody around in town to kind of explode. And then I didn't. I just went out and kind of just picked up clients and decided to shack up training underneath this place. And by the time it came around, everybody dismissed me and nobody wanted to be around. And then it wasn't until a few years later, by sheer force and audacity, that I decided to, that people go, oh, maybe he's got the smell of death off of him now. <laughs> um, so. I really appreciate that answer because I, you know, Jason, I think had a different path and Jason and Jeff had different, we all had different paths and yeah. how we got to this. Um, and I think, you know, I went with Homeland Security and I, I'll be honest with you, like, unless you were willing to just play that corporate game with those people, you just weren't going far. And that was not for me. I'm the first person to be like, hey, fuck off. You're an idiot. I don't, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. And I didn't do well in that environment. So then when I kind of got out into the private sector, I kept that attitude. I found out, holy shit, these people don't even know what the hell they're doing because they're all just as lost, you know, trying to be like, figure out what they're doing. So um, I, I didn't really have that, um, I guess, um, looked at differently thing until I jumped out on my own and opened up a gym. Mm -hmm. And then it was, I had the chip on my shoulder. And I think Jeff had a chip on his shoulder. Um, from his backstory. But Jeff, I want to kick it to you real quick for a question you might have for Mr. Pressfield on this, on these topics, or if you want to jump to a different one. I mean, I'll just share my viewpoint here. I mean, there's a part in the book where like, I think like, I mean, like you failed to make a delivery or something. And they're like, I hired you because you were a Marine. That's the only reason mm -hmm. like, your job is to like deliver and you didn't deliver. And uh, I think, you know, when it goes back to like relationships and stuff like that, where we fail to deliver and, I think for men, the ego is sort of in the forefront, especially in our earlier years, because we don't sense our own vulnerability. And so we want to win and we want to win at all costs to serve that ego um, because we're not pro yet. Right. And so I think over time, when you burn more bridges, because you got that ship chip on your shoulder, you realize how alone you can become. And then you look back like what Jason said, and you realize in hindsight that you were wrong and that you could have done better and you failed to deliver. And I think that's maturity and, and introspection and all that stuff and growing up. And I feel like, you know, even though we may have all been misfits in some way, and we kind of want to do things on our own, in the end, we realize that we do need other people around us and going alone is, is just that it's very lonely. Um, so that's what I got out of it. Hmm. My question for you next is speaking of the Marines. What did the Marines teach you? Or did that more or less open up the door of like, no, I don't want this shit. I'm definitely going to go this direction. No, I think they taught me a lot. That experience taught me a lot. In fact, what I would say is that, uh, and it's not just the Marines, it's any kind of outfit like that, you know, any kind of hardcore outfit like that. They teach you, or what you learn there is discipline. But what? But the discipline in the, in the military is discipline imposed on you from externally, from outside, by sergeants, by whoever's in charge of you, right? 
you wake up in the morning and there's the, the, the uniform of the day and the order of the day. And, you know, we're going to train, we're going to do this, we're going to do this or whatever. But once you become like you guys, entrepreneurs or like me, a writer, which is an entrepreneur, True. it has to become self-discipline. And so you have to sort of, that's that big change, I think, that sort of becomes maturity, like you're saying, Jeff, where you mm -hmm. have to realize nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to reinforce me at the end of the day. Nobody's going to say to me, good job, pat on the back. You know, <laughs> nobody's going to steer me right. Nobody's going to cheer me up. I have to do that myself. I have to, you know, literally look in the mirror and say, good job, you know, and and also when things are going bad, I've also got, I've got to be the one to kick my own ass, you know, because there is no, no externally imposed structure or externally imposed discipline anymore. So what I kind of took from the Marine Corps very deliberately was just to do exactly that, only make myself my own boss instead of, you know, whatever sergeants or officers were over me. So then that was really crucial in terms of discipline is something you can build is what you learn from the Marines, not something that you inherit or a gift given to you by the gods or the muse, as we like exactly. to say in the writing room. More than that, just the fact that, you know, Jeff, like that there is this thing called discipline. You know, I never even thought about that growing up. You know, I never thought, oh, that's mm -hmm. got to be a part of my life. You know, that I have to I have to have a structure to my day. I have to have an order to my month. It's like when you asked at the start of each one of these sessions, how was your last week? Right. Right. That's really important. Right. It's breaking out a block of time and and make and making us ourselves evaluate that. Right. How did we do? Are we fucking up or are we on target here? What about next week? What are we aiming for next week? And so on and so forth throughout the year. So, you know, I never even had the, the, the clue when I was a kid that there was such a thing as discipline. I don't think anybody does, you know, maybe if you're a, if you're a football player or a basketball player and you're on a team that's really, you know, focused like that. But again, that discipline is externally imposed by your coach or your sensei or whoever's in charge of you. And the big leap is when you can do that yourself. Jason, what question do you have? I know you wanted to go somewhere, so well, I'll see where you want to go before I go somewhere. You know, I think I have to understand the mentality of where you were some nights. I mean, you lived in some interesting places. Like one of them had like no running water. Um, I believe yeah. no air or heat. Um, you lived in your van uh, with milk cartons or whatever, holding up your <laughs> bed or your box springs. Uh, and then you had the mental um, halfway house. Um, so like, how are you staying upbeat and positive when you're, when you're kind of in that situation? Like, are you, are you sitting there thinking, uh, this is how I'm going to become a writer. I need experience. I've got to experience life. I'm going to, or is it just kind of like, you're just scraping by and trying to get by? Like, was it, was it for the experience or was it just simply to, to survive? Uh, I was just trying to survive in all okay. of those circumstances, you know, at that sort of, uh, you know, there's a moment that I talk about in the war of art, in my book, the war of art, where I sort I was in a sublet apartment in New York city at, alone at night. Mm -hmm. And I, and I finally dragged out my old typewriter, this one here mm -hmm. and, and wrote down some stuff. And for the first time felt good at the end of, of writing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the moment for me 
where my feet finally touched the ground. You know, I wasn't drowning in water anymore. And I felt like, okay, this is my future. You know, I, I just have to, I have to stick with this. But before that, I was just trying to survive from day to day and just wondering, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What is this all about? And when is it ever going to end? Yeah, yeah. And then my other question is, Steven, like, it sounds like you got like a decent place to you. It was like on the east side of, I don't know, was it L.A. or something? Yeah, it was L.A., yeah. And he's in the background telling everyone he's at this shithole. I just laughed. I thought it was kind of funny. Like, were you kind of just like, did you kind of just brush it off? Or were you kind of like, oh, man, that, that guy's a that guy's a dick? <laughs> no, I just I just laughed at that because it was did just a, a question of it's all what your point of view is. You know, yeah, I mean, sure. it's a little dinky house in L.A. Yeah. And to him, it was a shithole. Mm -hmm. But to me, having mm -hmm. lived in a house that had no doors and no windows, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, this is great. man. I've you were got, moving on up. I've got a I've got a toaster. You know, I'm, yep. I'm living, you know, the life. <laughs> I just that made me chuckle. Yeah. I want to go to Woodstock and you were there. Um, you talked about LSD, but you didn't really get into if you used or not. I wanted to ask if you did and what your current thoughts are of today's um, resurgence. As Paul Austin says, you know, the third wave of, you know, psychedelics coming back and their um, use now and potentially with depression, anxiety, suicide prevention. Kind of wanted to get your take on that. Have you had experience with psychedelics and, and if so, what's your what's your take? And then what do you think about our current climate in regards well, I to them? I really ask you, Jeff, because I mean, like <laughs> my experience with psychedelics was in the hippie era, you know? Right. And, and it wasn't extensive. I only had like three acid trips and three trips on mescaline, right? Oh, the mescaline. What did you think of that? I did that once. I'm curious. Did you did my that was, was like the whole spirit warrior journey for yeah. me? It was you know, the, what it opened up for me, but again, I, cause I don't know how people do it today. I mean, I don't know what the concept is, you know, mushrooms and, uh, you know, ayahuasca and all that and shamans and going to Costa Rica, you know, uh, I don't know how that works, but I, I haven't that, done that fucking shit. But for me, the experience of it was, well, the world that you see on psychedelics, uh, when you look in somebody else's face and they, and you can't believe how beautiful they are, you know, or even, or how beautiful the world is. And you come back from that, from that world into the, into the kind of foreshortened world of our real life. You say to yourself, or at least I say to myself, this life that I, that I've been living, this thing that I see that I think is life, this is not life. That other life is real life. That other life, I, I sort of said to myself, this must be the way Jesus Christ sees the world, you know, or sees other people, where you can see right into their soul and you see how beautiful they are, you know? And when you come back and you have all those shitty small thoughts that you have, you say to yourself, this is, this is not the real world. I may think this is the real world, but the real world is beneath this. And the fact that I can't see it, that's my problem, you know? So it sort of really humbles you, I think, you know, and gives you a sense that the world is a much bigger place, a much deeper place, and a much more beautiful place than you th than you think it is, you know. Um, there's just a, there are a lot more worlds out there, and universes and galaxies and stuff like that. 
So that was, that was, but I don't know, that was my takeaway from my brief experience, but I, I don't know exactly or at all what people today are doing when they go on these kind of, you know, semi-guided <laughs> shamanistic things. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know what that's really all about. Why don't you tell me, Jeff, what is it today? So I have never done the shaman one. The only one that I was interested in doing, which Jason and I talked about was with Dorian Yates, who was six time Mr. Olympia. The, the motherfucker didn't cheat on his diet for over six years. He basically uh -huh. lived this monk life. And I was like, well, if I'm going to have some guy guide me while I'm under the influence of nature's most powerful drug, it's going to be this guy. <laughs> and then he stopped doing it. And I've just since read that a lot of it's very hit or miss, right? So I've really stuck with LSD and mushrooms. And I really like the microdosing effect. And I think for a lot of people, because of the way and I wrote about this in my book, like I struggled deeply with the Catholic and the, I guess, the red Republican side of me dealing or doing an illegal drug that was going to potentially take my mind forever away from me and all this stuff. Like it was really like, I felt like I was committing this great sin, but it was when you're on your knees and your knees are being like just driven in, you know, as you're dropping to your knees and what my analogy was, it was full of broken glass below me. I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to find my way out. And I think that that's what psychedelics had done for me. It had taken that shitty layer of life, that constant friction of just this fucking sucks. I don't like dealing with these people. What's the purpose? Da, da, da. And it had slowly dissolved that where I started seeing the beautiful things now. Like if someone cuts me off traffic, I don't really give a fuck. Like, I'm like, oh man, they probably got somewhere they need to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it, whereas before I did them, I would have been like, fuck this and racing my car up or just pissed. But it allowed me to really get in touch with myself and get past trauma. I think that, and I talked about this a lot in my book. I think that trauma needs to be re-looked at. Everybody now is in a race to see who's more fucked up than the next person. Like, oh, look at what I went through, what I went through. And then it's like this, but no one uses it for any good. Everybody just sits down and be like, feel bad for me. I'm sad. I have trauma. And I'm like, well, I took all my trauma and turned it to pissed off energy and went and rammed shit down throats. You know what I mean? And yes. I would don't think that psychedelics put it all together and put the bow tie on it for me. So I do think they have a good efficacy of use, but I think that my concern is going to be the people who are going to lie to get a hold of it, who aren't mentally mature enough or emotionally mature enough and who it could potentially do more damage to them. Um, and that's my concern because every, a lot of people are really screwed up out there or they're writing the narrative they are. And I think that that makes these drugs potentially more poisonous over time. Uh, that's my concern with it. But I agree with everything you said. When you're on it, like uh, Jason and I microdosed, we did like, uh, I guess a museum dose the first time. He watched me watch an ant drag like this twig across his friend Troy's <laughs> pool for like three hours. I'm like, Jason, look how beautiful that ant is. Look at look at what it's doing with the grass. Look what it's doing with the dirt right now. I'm like, I'm just, Jason's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, it's so beautiful, Jason, you know, and just having a good time. But I really appreciate you sharing that because I do think that the time frames are completely different. You, you know, back yeah. then you didn't have social media. You didn't have the media telling you every day that there's <laughs> something is burning alive somewhere, you know, it was, yeah. you know, it was oh, just very different. Didn't. Well, yeah, they didn't have 24 hour news. You got no. Walter Cronkite for 30 minutes and that was it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got what you got. Yeah. So, um, my next See, question, question, go for it, question when you were living like that, do you like, when you were like kind of making ends meet, right. Kind of struggling in your earlier years, Stephen. Do you feel like you um, were more fulfilled back then 
when you are trying to make things happen and dreaming and building versus now where you've already dreamt and built things and you're established and you can reflect on your life? Do you have more sadness now and maybe emptiness or were you more fulfilled back then? Um, That's a good question. I would not. I definitely was not more fulfilled back then. Now, I may say that in many ways, it was a more vivid life, you know, in the sense that your nerve endings were totally exposed to everything. Mm -hmm. My pain would be more intense. Joy would be more Mm -hmm. intense. But I have have kind of a theory um, that's in a book of mine called The Artist's Journey, that our life is kind of divided in half, or at least this is true for me. And the first half, we're sort of seeking our calling. You know, we're lost. We're bumping into walls. We're trying this. We're failing at that. We're trying another. We're failing. We're failing. We're failing. And at some point, we sort of find our calling. And we, for me, it was like, okay, I'm a writer. I don't give a shit. If I fail, uh, this is it for me. And at that point, then your focus completely shifts. And for me, it became, okay, how am I going to make myself the professional that I need to be on every level, not just disciplining myself to do the work, but opening myself up to inspiration, to Mm -hmm. other dimensions of reality, et cetera. So now if I were a musician, I would just be focusing on my music. You know, if I were an athlete, I would be focusing only on, on, on my sport. So it's a different world. You know, my world now from the outside might look boring because I pretty much am in a room and, and working on a project, you know, but in my inner world is, is totally fulfilling in that I'm really on my path and doing my thing, what I was meant to do. So mm-hmm. they do seem to be two, two different halves for me of my life. Anyway, how would you, um, for people who struggle with, um, like that thing you said about the nerve endings being exposed, I think success and and uh, you know financial or like income in general uh, shields us from feeling things, right? That's why people say you grow out of touch, right? That saying. How would you recommend people to stay in touch um, as you are gaining success? I can only, I'll, you know, uh, I can only. I'll ask, just answer for myself, Jeff. Yeah, like for me as a writer, every new book is a new challenge, a new adventure. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like, oh, I've done this before. I'll just plug it in, A, B, C, paint by the numbers. No, it's always something, it's always something new and it's always something hard. And it always makes me stretch. So otherwise I won't do it. You know, if I, if I think I've done it before, I won't do it. Mm. So that always sort of keeps me on my toes. You know, like just before I'm working on a new book, just before we did this, we're doing this thing right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my head was like wobbling, you know, coming off, you know, my head was coming off my neck, working on this, trying to figure out what, what, what the hell I was doing. So, but that's where I wanted to be, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what you would say, staying in touch. Now, okay. I'm not sure how that applies to anybody else, but that's how it applies to me. Do you think in the route in your memoir that the truck driving was the battleground for fear and resistance for you? Um. 
I'm not. Can you rephrase that? Jeff? So when you became a truck driver, you basically were like, Hey, I'm at the bottom. I'm truck driving. That sounded very adventurous. Like you're going through these mountains. You have to like go at a high rate of speed, just blinding through these turns, trusting and so forth. Do you feel like that that was where the battleground towards be, you know, of overworking to overcome fear to gain momentum oh, against yeah, yeah. resistance. Do you feel that was the pivotal pivot point in your life? That truck you know, driving more game? so than the military, more so than anything. Okay. It was sort of the, a real, um, I'm really, really grateful that I had that opportunity and that I had the, the, the particular boss, a guy named Hugh Reeves mm -hmm. that, and you know, other guys that I knew there, I named Harold Blackburn that taught me because it was exactly, it was a, for me, it was about fear and it was about overcoming my own tendency to sabotage myself, to fuck up, you know, and which I did plenty. And um, so even though I totally failed at that, you know, I couldn't succeed in the end. I ran away from it. Um, it, it really was a, a foundation for me that I've used again and again and again in the, in the, you know, since then. Okay. Now I want to take us to Hollywood. All right. Um, <laughs> what was, but, yeah. What was making it in quotes like in Hollywood? Cause I think everybody's got this idea of what Hollywood might be. And in your book, it's, it's really a different, <laughs> it's a different crack. Like I'm reading it and I'm just like, holy shit. It seems like everybody out there just pisses on the other person. And it's kind of like our fitness industry with coaches. We just all shit on each other and hope for the best. <laughs> so I was curious what you thought, what, what, what making it in Hollywood's like, what's that life like? Well, sort of, the, you know, for me, this, the whole book government cheese is really about the odyssey of a writer learning how to learning the craft, learning the, you know, the mindset and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And so eventually I did get to Hollywood and I had like a 10 year kind of B level career, you know, okay. level of failure, just like everything else, you know, but um, it, it is a world, a total dog eat dog world out there um, or here. I'm here still. I'm still in Los Angeles. Um, it's uh, but I, I, I love it because it's entrepreneurialism at its purest thing, like to succeed as a writer, let's say as a screenwriter to, to write a script, you don't need anything except a pencil and a piece of paper, right? You don't need a gym. You don't need weights. You don't mm -hmm. need investors. You don't need anything like that. As long as you can sit down in front of one of these things here and beautiful for, keyboard, you know, however long it takes to bang out a script, you could succeed. You know, you could you could write Apocalypse Now. You can write The Godfather. Nobody's stopping you, right? Mm -hmm. So it it was sort of uh, it, it's really the wild, or at least it was when I was really doing it, which was a few years ago. It's the Wild West, and uh, a lot of people will piss on you. Everybody will piss on you, mm -hmm. but they're also you make great friends to help you too, mm -hmm. and it's. Uh, it's also learning a skill. Like when I got here originally, I didn't know I'd clue what a story was. You know, you and I have worked together on 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 your book, Jeff. You know, right? We talked a little bit about what a story is. Um, so, but you learn that in the school of hard knocks in in screenwriting. You know, in a meeting, you'll be embarrassed. Somebody will say to you, "Well, what's your Act One curtain?" And you say to yourself, "What the fuck is that?" You know? <laughs> somebody. 
you know, somebody takes you outside and explains what it is. And that's how you learn, you know, street learning, street wisdom. So again, it was a, it was a great period for me, even though, again, I never really succeeded at it. Didn't you do the legend of Bagger Vance though? Yeah. I was going to ask about that, but I, I want to hear what he has to say before I ask him a question about legend of Bagger Vance. So Jason, you go with what you might want to ask him. I, well, I think I have a follow up. It was tag. a great movie that had to have, that had to have uh, accolades and it was a great, it was good at the box office. I thought like that was a great movie. You wrote uh, well, that right. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you liked it, Jason. I felt like you know I wrote the book, not the movie. I wrote okay. the book, and they fired me right away off the movie day one. They shit canned uh, me. Yeah, I was going to ask what that felt like. What did it feel like to get shit canned off the book you wrote for the movie that they <laughs> wanted to do? Because that would be like the equivalent, of like Jason launching or Jeff or me or launching something, and then the next day you say, "Hey, get the fuck out of this captain seat. We don't want you." Curious how you handle that. Well, that's that's actually the nature of Hollywood, right? In the sense that, um, let's say you wrote an original screenplay or you wrote a book and you make a deal for the, for the movie, right? And the director comes on board. Now, in the case of The Legend of Bagger Vance, that was Robert Redford. And at that point, it's his movie. It's now his, you know, it's now his movie. It's not my movie anymore. And so he doesn't want, the director doesn't want some pain in the ass writer looking over his shoulder saying, Hey, I didn't see that scene that way, you know? So they fire you. They always do. They get rid of you right away. Mm -hmm. So what I absolutely expected it. And what happened was the producer of the movie, who was a wonderful guy named Jake Eberts, who had like four best picture Oscars for um, dances with wolves, driving Miss Daisy and uh, Gandhi, you know, mm -hmm. um, wonderful guy who died way too young he phoned me up and he and he fired me in a really nice gentlemanly way and i said to him and he was really upset about it you know because he and i said to him jake this is the first time anybody has actually told me i was fired normally i have to read about it in the newspapers because nobody will even tell you you've been shit canned you know so i said thank you so much for being a wonderful gentleman and actually telling me that i'm fired so it, i took it totally in stride it was no problem at all hmm. i'm going to give it to the guys to ask each final question because we're getting close on time so jason do you have a final question for steven that you'd like to ask him well, I mean, I, I think I'm going to stray from the book on this one and just kind of get some piece of wisdom uh, just from Stephen. Um, so I guess my question would be, um, I, obviously, well, how do I how do I form this? Um, I guess what keeps you what keeps you working at, at 78? Why not just retire and play golf and say, uh, I've made my my money. I'm financially set. And uh, I, I mean, you know, because I mean, we all think about like, how long are we going to do what we do? And sometimes I think, hell no. And sometimes I think oh, I'll still be helping people out at, you know, in my 70s. So I guess what makes you keep doing that rather than, I guess, doing something else? You know, sometimes a role model for me, Jason, is Bob Dylan. OK, whatever. However, I don't know how old he is, mm -hmm. but he keeps banging out the albums. Right. He keeps touring. Yeah. And I'm sure that that keeps him alive and keeps him excited, you know? Willie Nelson. It's, it's the same for me. It's like, if I if I ran out of projects, mm -hmm. if I didn't have a new idea, then I'd really be scared, you know? As long as I've got a, a, uh, 
a new idea for a new book then i'm excited and, and i you know I, I don't really want to play golf you know yeah, I, yeah. i'm gonna keep working until they drag me out feet first okay there you heard it here first <laughs> jeff what's your final question how do you reconcile any regrets that you've had oh how do you make uh, peace with question. that you know i've actually been i'm old enough now that i do think about that a little bit and uh you know because i want to add one thing to that because yeah. some of the people maybe have maybe have passed in your life or they have moved away far enough that you could never see them again face to face so how do you deal with this silence on the end of a, a phone call when you can't you know communicate anymore your regrets or say i'm sorry in some cases how do you deal with that you I, I, you know i really don't know <laughs> I, I just you just have to accept it you know because i could i could rattle off 30 of these things right now you know people i wish i had said this or i hadn't done that or whatever but that's life we're human you know we fuck up and people have have fucked up for us too you know so i just have to forgive myself and and move on you know and say i was I didn't know what I should have known. I was trying the best I could. And I try to feel that way about other people too. You know, uh, a little bit like what Jeff said before about when he's driving and he's pissed off at somebody had cut them off, you know, you say, Hey, maybe the guy's having a bad day. He doesn't really, you know? So yeah, I just, just have to be, uh, have a little compassion for myself. What is, yeah, that was a great one. I don't know if this one could beat it. Um, what is one thing that you would want a man right now or a woman, I guess, who is going through the path of failure to hear from someone who spent years, decades in the trenches with a best friend named failure? What is one caveat that you'd want them to know beyond just, just keep going? Like, what would you say to them? What would you have said to a younger you, I guess? Uh, you know, actually, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins, the actor, the guy who mm -hmm. played Hannibal Lecter, yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. you know, in Silence of the Lambs, he is, he's on Instagram from time to time uh. and, uh, you know, just doing like a 30 second thing. And I saw him the other day and they were asked, it was, he was on some kind of show or something. And they asked him that exact same question. He said, well, cause he's whatever, 80 something these days. Right. And he said, what would you say to a younger version of yourself? And, uh, He's funny because he has that English accent and he's very authentic. He's not like an asshole at all. It's like a real present guy. And he said, keep going. He says, that's all you can do. You know, no matter what happens, keep going because you never know what's around the next corner. Could be something really good. And in any event, stopping is not an alternative. You stop, you die. Right. So just keep yes. going. Keep going. Um, and I think that's, that's great advice. Uh, it's like if you're swimming in the ocean, what are you going to do? You got to keep swimming, you know? So I, I think that's it. Try to do it with the best spirit possible. And oh, that, I love uh, that. You know, um, it might seem like hell, but it's really a journey. And it does mean something in the end. And, and uh, it's not meaningless. It's not insignificant. Keep going. Mm -hmm. What's next for you as we wrap this up? What do you what do you got working on besides, you know, after government cheese comes out? What are you gonna be hitting like the talk show circuits? 
all this good stuff. Jeff, it's a man at arms. Yep, you gave it to me. A man at arms. It's about a a recurring character of mine in the ancient world, the one man killing machine of the ancient world, Telamon of Arcadia. And so I'm working on a, a, the next his next story, and uh, it's uh, it, it's pretty deep. It's deeper than a lot of things I've done, if not everything I've done. So I'm in I'm up to my eyeballs in that one. Have any of the streaming channels come after you for that that series? No. Okay. No. So I can see any, it being a good one. Any money, Jason? Uh, let me know. We'll make <laughs> hey, you never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. No, nobody's come around. Well, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Where can everybody find you at? Purchase your books. Um, I, I want to get you out to Nashville for an interview. I want to do with you. Put you up in a sweet hotel. Take you honky tonkin and uh, <laughs> parade you around all the local bookstores and, and let let all these quote unquote artists here in Nashville understand that why they need uh, the war of art in their life. But where can everybody follow you and, and purchase all your stuff at? Rather than Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that's the, I'm there, but I have a website, you know, that's just my name, stephenpressfield.com. You can pre-order this government cheese, the new book there. It comes out December 30th, but it can be pre-ordered now. Signed copies can be pre-ordered. And I'm on Instagram I'm and uh, in any bookstore or anything like that. Sweet. Well, Stephen, man, thank you. I want to say thank you so much for meeting with me monthly and really helped me with this book. Um, just the fact that I've had to be accountable to someone has really, really helped. Just like the three of us are accountable to each other on different projects we do. Thank you for being that for me in this project that I've been doing because I really have enjoyed writing, my man. It's my pleasure, Jeff. You know, it's great fun doing it for you or with you. And you are the real deal. And I wouldn't do it if you weren't the real deal. And well, thank you very much. Gift, you know, that you can only develop more and more as time goes by, you know. Thank already you. you've got a great gift so i appreciate God that bless you you know for what you're doing keep it up you know it's been great fun working with, with you and we'll keep working yes sir thank you well thanks steven all right all right guys i'll catch y'all next all week right. see you all peace bye. all right see you thanks jason thanks Jeff. Yeah, thank see you, you next time bye. thanks steven bye